and with us. Uh, we uh, were in the book of Acts, but we've been away from it since February, and we are now in the home stretch, just a, a few more weeks, and we're going to uh, finish this book. Uh, we have called this The Empowered Church. Now, the reason is because uh, we see, although this is called the, the Acts of the Apostles, maybe the, the better term would be uh, the Acts of God's Holy Spirit using everyday normal people to accomplish His great work. It is really about uh, His Holy Spirit and, and uh, how uh, the church rose up, but not because they were so great, but because of what a great God he is. Now, uh, we are going to take this in sections today. It's a long passage. Uh, but I want, you to, I want you to do this. This is, uh, we're, we're getting to the point just as a reminder where um, Paul was in the, the third of three trials that he had. He is literally uh, on his way to Rome but he had been in Caesarea uh, during this time for uh, these trials. Uh, amazingly, Caesarea was the very first place we went when we went to Israel, so it was striking to me to see uh, passages of, of Scripture that I had just preached in, was about to get into um, when we arrived there. Um, it was a different picture than I had in my mind of that city. Uh, I want you to think of two people. Now these, these, for some of you, will be real people, and for some of you, you're going to have to make them up. They'll be fictitious people, but uh, here's, here's the description. And by the way, you who are students uh, and you who are uh, graduating this year, uh, I want to encourage you to think of uh, these people as perhaps your professors that you will be uh, interacting with in the future. But for all of us, I want us to think of, of uh, two people, and here's their description of these people. They don't know Christ as their Savior. They may be living an openly immoral lifestyles that they don't even feel the need to justify. They are powerful, and they hold your future in their hands. Now, for students, it's just things like a grade, but that is your future, right? And you are called on to share a witness for Christ to them. And you've got four minutes to do it. Where are you going to start? What are you going to say? And because it's such a brief time, what are you not going to say? Or what will you choose to leave out? in terms of your testimony in that kind of a situation. Now, that's the situation Paul is in at this point. 
And so I want us to, we're going to kind of dissect how he handled it, what he did, what he chose to say and what he chose not to say. So uh, I, I think you're going to see that in his testimony, he somehow is able to make it a personal, respectful, sincere, and yet it's, it's powerful and to the point. So let's begin reading uh, here in Acts 26. Remembering this is, this is an account of something that really took place. This isn't a story. This happened. It says this. We're going to start with the first 11 verses. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. That would have been a posture uh, of making a, a defense in that day. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa. I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you're familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They've known for a long time. They're willing to testify that a, a, according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee, and now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship day and night, night and day. And for this hope, I'm accused by the Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Now, I want us to start with this, these first 11, because what we see here is that um, Paul begins by talking about his life before Christ. Now, we're going to talk about that in just a minute, but I want you to notice what he doesn't do in beginning here. And it may not be apparent, especially if uh, you don't remember who Agrippa is and, or uh, you're just joining us uh, today. He doesn't begin by condemning Agrippa's lifestyle. And I think that's striking. Let me remind you about Agrippa. 
he was the one that was living with his sister Bernice as his wife. He wasn't hiding it. He wasn't justifying it. It was a scandal even among some in that day. Now, think about that. Here, here is a, you know, the proverbial elephant in the room. <laughs> and you're a person of God. It's so apparent. But Paul doesn't mention that. I'm convinced it was not out of fear. Paul was not afraid of Agrippa. It was deliberate. Why didn't he just get at that issue, call him and her what they were, and then move on to his testimony? Well, I think there's real reason for that. I want to give you uh, several quick reasons why not to start with a focus on someone else's lifestyle. It is almost impossible for us to begin by talking with someone about their lifestyle without coming across as holier than thou, right? Even if that's not what you want to do, even if you see the problems it's causing in their life, it, it, is, it comes across as, well, you're saying you don't have issues too? What are you, some kind of a holier-than-thou person judging me? And then all of a sudden the issue becomes that and not their biggest problem. And Paul didn't go there. He chose not to talk about this awful, scandalous lifestyle that they were living. There's a second reason why I recommend you don't start with that in talking with someone. When you start by attacking someone's lifestyle, you not only alienate yourself, you know, you put up a, an, an, another barrier. They've probably already got one there. You put up another barrier because they're going to feel the need to get defensive about it. But it also implies that what they need to do is they need to clean up their life before they can come to Christ. Now, that's not the case. You don't want them to immediately think, well, before, you know, if, if they're feeling some conviction that, and they, they want salvation in Christ, you don't want them to immediately think, well, I've got to do this and this and this and this, and then I can think about coming to Christ. You don't want to give them that implication whatsoever. A moral life should follow salvation. It rarely precedes it. And then there's a, a third reason I think that Paul might have left this out and we ought to. And that problem is that you'll come in contact with some very moral people who still need Christ. 
You know them. You know some of those people. You might say, you know what? They're living a more moral life than some Christians I know. (coughs) And so, if you begin by talking about morality, then you've got nowhere to go with them. They may say, well, you know, my family's in, in order. I'm faithful to my wife. I'm a good worker. And I, you know, all these things. And so you never want to give that as the implication that it's all about just living a moral life. We must not start with attacking their lifestyle if we want to reach those around us. So he starts with his story of before he met Christ. And I think that's the, that's the place to begin for most of us. He was honest. He was transparent about his earlier days. He talked about his uh, being a Pharisee and being a good one. But he also talked about something that I'm sure was very painful to talk about out loud, and that was, I was a persecutor. I was a killer. I saw to it that men and women who followed Christ were put in prison. I voted for them to be executed. I held the cloaks of those who did the murder. That's where he began. And by the way, Agrippa, he didn't say this out loud, but he could have been saying in his mind, yeah, me too. You know, Paul, you, you were a lot like I've been. As that was his story as well. Agrippa never interrupted him, he just listened. And Paul talked about how that Jesus, who once was dead, is now alive. And then he talks about what's happened since he met Christ. Let's read, let's start in verse 19. Well, I'm sorry, I jumped ahead. Uh, Let's uh, talk about when he met Christ, verse 12. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the uh, authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven. Here we're getting some details of what took place on that road to Damascus. Uh, A light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God 
and they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Now, we've looked previously at Paul's conversion experience on on the road, but what I want you to see here is that what Paul makes clear is, is this. I wasn't looking to be converted. I wasn't looking to meet the risen Christ. I wasn't looking for an encounter with God. I had other things on my agenda, and he inserted himself into my life, and I simply could not ignore it. So he talks about what it took to get his attention. He was on his way to carry out more persecution when he was confronted by the voice in the light. And so we see him, him telling basically what happened. This is what, this is what happened to me. And then he moves on to since he met Christ. And we've talked about this, kind of the, the classic way to give a, a, a testimony. You have the before I met Christ, when I met Christ, and since I met Christ. Let's look now at uh, verse 19. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the regions of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds and keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I've had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Recently, I I heard a testimony by someone who had come to Christ. It was a... um, the, the whole testimony, it wasn't four minutes. It probably was about 30 minutes or so. And it was, it was a wonderful testimony. But unfortunately, it was very interesting. But most of it was about before this person met Christ. And most of it was over about a four- or five-year period of that person's life before he had met Christ. And while it was interesting, and if you wanted to get to know somebody, that's fine to to talk about those things and so on. What what we need to do in terms of, of focusing is not so much on Before I met Christ, you may have to tell some things, and some of the things he said were very relevant to understanding him understanding his need for Christ. But then focus especially, we should focus especially on how I met Christ and then 
even more so on what that's meant in my life since that time. Because here's, here's what you're doing when you do that. You're not focusing so much on an unredeemed you, but upon the great work that God does in the life of one who was unredeemed at one point. So I encourage you as you shape what you will say. Yes, you've got to be honest about your past. You've got to to talk to some degree. And yet, don't make that the major focus. Every time I I say this, I I didn't have it in my sermon, but I, I can't help but think of one of our friends in Ukraine who who was a a soldier in the Russian army. And he starts his testimony this way. We won't talk about the first 50 years of my life without Christ. And when I heard that, I thought, that's perfect. That says it all. I mean, you can look at him and tell he had a, a rough first 50 years. And yet his focus on was upon what Christ did and what he is doing in his life. And that's what we ought to do. Remember this too. The, the, the kind of the danger of focusing on the how I met Christ is that everybody, everybody's experience in that part is different. You know, there's, there's going to be some that are going to have a, a dramatic thing like Paul, probably not like Paul, but a dramatic conversion. And then there's others that are going to say, I don't remember a time when I, I didn't love Jesus. And you know, thanks be to God if that's your testimony. So we, we don't want to focus so much on a, 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 the dramatic part of a conversion, but what's he doing now? And if you, if you didn't have a dramatic conversion, be thankful. Don't envy those that had the awful before I met Christ and needed the dramatic conversion. Don't ever envy them. God works in many different ways with us. Now, let's look at what, what came next then because what, we're, what we see is the application of his testimony. He didn't just leave it there and, and say, so there you have it, that's me. How about you? You know, there wasn't any of that. We, we see him making an appeal. Uh, verse 24. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said in a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. Paul said, now notice how respectful he is here. I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. But I'm speaking true and rational words. I'm afraid I might not have had that much restraint. You know, what... You're out of your mind. No, you're out of your mind. You know, and then it goes back and forth, and that's not going to get you anywhere. Instead, he is respectful, and he says, no, 
These are true and rational words. And here's what I suspect. I suspect that those, any that would have been watching, would have been thinking to themselves, well, we can tell which one's out of their mind here. And they weren't thinking of Paul. What a, what a wonderful way God worked in him to give him that restraint. But listen then, what he does, he turns the conversation from Festus. He answers him respectfully, but turns it from him to Agrippa, and he gives him a great deal of credit. Verse 26, for the king, that's Agrippa, knows about these things. And to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. You see what he's saying? He's, he's making a big presumption here. He, he knows that he would have known about Jesus and so on. He couldn't have escaped that. But he's kind of giving him credit and saying, look, I, I'm speaking boldly to Agrippa. He knows about these things that I'm talking about. And he kind of gives him, him credit, and he's very respectful to him. Richard John Newhouse, who um, really didn't come from our uh, religious tradition, uh, nevertheless from a Christian tradition, but he said this in, in uh, an article. Let me, let me read you his statement about civility. He says, Civility, which I take to be a strong virtue... And not simply wimpishness requires that we not try to cram our beliefs down anyone, anybody's throats, whether we be Christian or non-Christian or even anti-Christian. But that we all try to articulate as persuasively as we can what it is that we believe. Of course, in the hope that others will be persuaded. Now, I know that that's hard to kind of digest, but you see what he's saying? It's okay to try to persuade someone, but we do it in a civil way. We don't, we don't try to cram it down their throats because here's the bottom line. You can't make somebody be a Christian. And cramming it down their throats is not going to make them say, oh, okay, yes, I'm, now I believe. Generally, it's the opposite effect. You get the stiff arm. You get the walls if you try to cram it down their throat, as he says. And that's what I see Paul doing. Now, he didn't give up on them. And I'm still amazed here because he he evidently wasn't disgusted by their sin. I'm convinced that's because... Paul understood his own sin. And by the way, that's, that's part of my theory. We tend to be most disgusted by sins that we're not tempted by. And when we're tempted by something, we tend to be more understanding and even forgiving. Paul here understood the depths of his sin and knew that except for God's grace on that road to Damascus, 
he would have been right where Agrippa was because he had been there before. Do you remember Alice Cooper? Okay, how many remember Alice Cooper? I am shocked that you know who Alice Cooper is. For those of you that don't know who Alice Cooper is, he, that's right, he, he was a rock musician. I mean, completely over the top in every, every possible way, I promise you. Cutting edge back when the edge was way out there. And <laughs> now, at, at the peak of his uh, stardom, he was drinking a bottle of whiskey a day. And even though unlike most people that lived in that world, uh, he had a marriage that had lasted 25 years, but it was about to end because of that. His wife was a churchgoer. Don't ask me how they got together. I'm just saying. This is his, his account. And he began to go to church. I'm sure the first day he walked into church was a, a, an experience for that church, wherever it was. And yet, he began to hear truths. And he felt like God was speaking to him every Sunday. He came to Christ, amazingly, and is still walking with Christ. But... He said this about uh, sharing with some of his fellow musicians because he still, he takes the opportunity to talk straight with them about the reality of the devil and he would know the reality of the devil and then the change in his life. But he says this, I've talked to some big stars about this, some really horrific characters. If he says really hor horrific, it is really horrific some really horrific characters, and you'd be surprised, he says. The ones that you think are the farthest gone are the ones that are the most apt to listen. Now, I tell you that just as a reminder. And I think Paul would say, look, I was the farthest gone. So that's why he wasn't willing to give up on Agrippa and, and even Festus. Because he understood if God could get a hold of his heart. And, and that's what Alice Cooper understands. He says, sometimes they're the ones. And I find that encouraging. We so often limit the ability of God to save the lost. And we must not do that. Who is it in your life that, that you've kind of written off? You've kind of said, I, I just don't see it. it it's not going to happen. Look at, at Paul's appeal. It's, it's a sincere appeal. Verse 28. Agrippa said to, to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? What a sad turn this takes. Now, I hope you're getting the drama of all this. Paul giving his testimony 
and Festus shouts him down, interrupts him, calls him crazy. He says, I'm not crazy. I'm speaking the truth. And then Agrippa chimes in. Do you really think in a a short time that you would persuade me? I imagine you could have heard a pin drop at that point. What would Paul say? He evidently held up his shackled hands and he said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am except for these chains. (laughs) Now there's almost a touch of humor in there. I want you all to become like me, converted. Well, not totally like me, you know, here's my chain. But what he's saying is, I want everyone to be redeemed and no one a prisoner. Now, that could have come across as arrogant if this is all you knew about Paul and him saying, I want you to be like me. But when we read everything else about him, we know, no, that's a sincere appeal. What he's saying is, you who are lost, you're like I was, and I want you to be like I am now. Not because I'm so good, but because Jesus is so good. And that's his emphasis here. It's simple. He's saying, I want you to know Christ. Look, here's the perspective. Daniel Niles says this, being a witness is, because some some of you, I'm, I'm afraid you're afraid of being a witness because you think it's too complicated. Here's what Daniel Niles says. Being a witness is one beggar telling another beggar where to get food. The Christian does not offer out of his bounty. He has no bounty. He's simply a guest at the master's table, and as an evangelist, he calls others too. He said, he said we're just like a, a beggar, and we see other beggars, and we say, there's food over here. Come on. Come eat. I think that's a, a great description of what it is to be a witness. We say so often here that there's two sides to our witness. Our life, if you claim Christ, your life will either be a positive witness or a negative witness for Christ. You are going to be a witness. It's just a matter of whether it'll be a positive or negative witness. Carl Rahner in in, uh, the Wittenberg Door magazine said the number one cause of atheism is Christians. Those who proclaim God with their mouths and deny Him with their lifestyles is what an unbelieving world finds simply unbelievable. I think that's probably why some of Alice Cooper's friends can't ignore him because they knew him before and they know him now. Positively, it, it, it drives us to our verse of the year. By this all people will know you're my disciples if you have love for one another. See, that fits with being a Christian. Oh, they have love for one another. Why is that? Because they're believers. 
There's two things I want you to remember. First of all, we see in this passage, there's absolutely no guarantee of people's response. Don't ever think that there's some magic formula that will guarantee if you say this and this and this in this order, you use this verse and, and so on and follow the flow chart and so on, they will come to Christ. If, if it worked that way, everybody in the world would be Christians by now. But instead, what we see is this. Here is Paul, the great evangelist, with this amazing testimony. And there are two different responses to his testimony. One calls him crazy, and the other writes him off. You think I would have listened in that short a time. So, if you share your testimony in Christ, and somebody calls you crazy, or somebody writes you off, and they will if you do it often enough, then take courage. You're in good company. But don't give up. And then secondly, we, we need to understand this. This is almost a side track, that responding to Christ doesn't necessarily change our circumstances, what's going on in our life. You know, we, we sing, uh, there, there's a couple of songs with this phrase in there, and I'm sorry, I, I, for the most part, I love the rest of the song. I don't want to wreck this song for you next time we sing it. But there's that phrase talking about when I came to Christ, and then I've been happy. From then, I've been happy all the time. I don't know anybody who is happy all the time. It doesn't describe anyone I see in the Scripture. I've only met a couple of people in my whole lifetime that were happy all the time, and they weren't in touch with reality, okay? (laughs) But know this, it may not make you happy all the time, but it will change everything. It won't change your circumstances. Paul was still in chains. He didn't get free, but it changed everything. He wrote the epistle of joy when he was in chains. So that's the difference. Your temporal circumstances aren't going to change. I deal with people who get cancer people who know Christ and people who don't know Christ who get cancer. And there is no comparison. I deal with people who have losses in their life of people they love, people who know Christ and people who don't know Christ, and there's no comparison. And we can say that about every single thing in life. And that's that's always an encouragement to me. Yes, in this world we'll have tribulation. We live in a fallen world. But the difference is Christ with us, Christ in us. 
when we have to deal with those things. So remember our original scenario. Those two people you're trying to bear witness to and students think of maybe a a professor that you've met or you may meet. You may not be in that exact circumstance, but at some point you're going to meet somebody somewhere with an immoral lifestyle that you may feel inwardly disgusted by. I want you to I want you to to think in these terms. Be personal. Your story is the most powerful witness that they will hear. Be respectful. I don't care what they're doing. They are image bearers of God. And be sincere. Invite them to that wonderful banquet that you as a beggar are taking, taking part in and that they need because they're hungry. Let's pray together. Lord, again, we know that you will put us in circumstances, give us the right words, give us the courage Give us the encouragement in knowing that there is no one who is still alive that is beyond a need for salvation and the possibility of it because of what a great God you are. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.